0: If you're anything like me, this catchy little tune was a pretty big deal to you for much of your childhood. Apologies in advance for getting it stuck in your head. You're out to see
1: the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Oz. You find he is a wizard of a whiz, if ever a
0: whiz was. If ever or ever a whiz was, the wizard of Oz is one because, 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 because of the wonderful things he does. Yes, I was a big fan of the 1939 movie musical, The Wizard of Oz. The flying monkeys are a little bit terrifying, but the rest of it, pretty magical. As you'll hear in the upcoming episode, I'm not 100% sure if or when I read the book that inspired this iconic film, which was written by L. Frank Baum and published all the way back in 1900. If I did, it's hard to separate it in my mind from Judy Garland and her ruby slippers. For episode 64, though, I had the chance to get back into the world of Oz in a different way. My guests suggested that we read Ozma of Oz, the third book in Baum's Oz series, published in 1907 at the request of all of the kid readers who had loved the first book so much. Remember, listeners, this is still 30 years before the movie hits screens. In Ozma of Oz, Dorothy is back in peril. This time, being thrown from the deck of a ship in yet another storm, and coming up on the shore of another magical land called the Land of Ev. She makes a new friend in a yellow chicken named Bellina, and a robot named TikTok learns the truth about a seemingly terrifying species called the Wheelers. Nearly has her head stolen by the vain Princess Langwidere, and is reunited with her old friends from Oz, now led by the young Princess Ozma. Dorothy teams up with Ozma and her army on a mission to free the royal family of Ev, who have been enslaved and enchanted by the cruel gnome king. The book is surprisingly progressive in a bunch of ways and opens up conversations about why we judge others based on appearance, why we tend to underestimate those around us, and why we automatically distrust things that are unfamiliar to us. This week's guest is Heather Boaz. Heather trained as an opera singer for six years and has worked in opera, straight theater, and film. She is a passionate linguist. She's nearly fluent in French and speaks conversational German and Italian too. Heather currently works as executive assistant to the publisher and editor-in-chief at Little Brown. She grew up reading her dad's copies of the entire Oz series and first fell in love with reading because of their father-daughter dates to the bookstore. Her dad is a surgeon and they could only spend quality time together late at night. And the only place that was open was the bookstore. I love that. L. Frank Baum's World of Oz clearly played an important role in Heather's childhood, and I'm grateful to have been invited to share that with her for this episode. If you're not following her already, be sure to check Heather out on bookstagram at mlleboaz.bibliophile. That M-L-L-E stands for Mademoiselle. Throwback to high school French class. I hope you're hanging out with me over on SSR social media feeds. We are at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast. As always, I would also humbly request that you leave a five star rating or review on Apple Podcasts if you're loving the show and haven't already, and that you share screenshots of the episodes you're listening to on Insta Stories, tagging SSR Pod so I can see. You can also support SSR by checking out our cute little merch line at www.ssrpodcast.com/shop or by becoming a Patreon sponsor. Visit w www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast for details. Patrons contribute a few dollars a month to the production of the show and get some fun exclusive rewards in return. You can contribute as little as a dollar a month. I am so grateful to each and every one of the Patreon sponsors out there listening now. I am also so grateful to my friends at Libre FM for continuing to partner with SSR. Libre FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. SSR listeners can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O and enter code SSRPOD when prompted. I have been getting such great feedback from SSR listeners who have already started using Libro.fm. If you're new to Libro.fm, don't forget to pick your favorite local bookstore before you check out, so they can benefit from your purchase. Now let's go to the show. freelance writer lifelong bookworm and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles so find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine we're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the ssr podcast hi heather welcome to ssr Hi, Ellie. Thank you. You are winding down. It sounds like a bit of a crazy work day, and I'm excited that we're just going to have, like, a little bit of a chill Tuesday night talking about my new friend, your old friend, Ozma of Oz
1: yes exactly what
0: i need (laughs) so you were the one who actually suggested this book to me i have to say it wasn't on my radar for the podcast and that's because it wasn't really on my radar as a kid i think i had the original like wizard of oz book on the list but i was not really aware of the other books in the series so i'd love for you to share a little bit more about your experience with ozma the first time around and why it resonated with you so much that you suggested that we talk about it today
1: Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. So, you know, it's funny. I actually had all of the Oz books. It's an entire beautiful, magical series. And Dorothy is such a strong little girl. And I just loved that as a child. I loved my strong female characters, kind of saucy, kind of talking back to their elders sort of characters. And I had this entire series that was my father's as a little boy. They were falling apart. And I think it was before I could even really properly like read this type of thing that they were read to me. As bedtime stories, Um, and then I reread them as I, you know, grew older. I think what I love about this series is that every single one of the books is honestly as good as The Wizard of Oz. The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, I believe, is actually the correct first title. But it's almost as if like somebody were to read the first Harry Potter or the first Chronicles of Narnia, like The Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, and then realized that there was an entire series and didn't know it. Um, that's how, kind of how I think of it. So, and Ozma was my favorite because our introduction to her, I think is just, she's so powerful. She's just like Dorothy and she's so
0: powerful and yeah, it's a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun meeting Ozma for the first time. <laughs> As I mentioned, I did not read this book and I was trying to remember if I had read The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. I think I probably did. It feels like, it would be impossible for me not to have read the book, the original book, as much of a bookworm as I was as a kid. And I did grow up loving the movie. What I found was interesting was that in researching a little bit about the book series and sort of when the movie came into the picture, it's a challenge to kind of, or at least for me, it was a challenge to like divorce my memories of the movie from the reading of the book. And I, I think part of it obviously is because the Ozma of Oz book in particular is almost like a series extension of what I am familiar with in terms of like the world of Oz, which is what we see in the movie and what we see in the original book. But even like just some of the details that I was reading like on Wikipedia and elsewhere while I was researching, it just for me, because the movie is such like a cultural touchstone, I personally was struggling to like separate the two in my mind. And again, maybe it's just because I wasn't as dialed in with the books as a kid. So now I'm kind of tempted to go back to the original Wonderful Wizard of Oz book, because this book was really quick read and a fun read. I kind of want to go back and see if it was something that I actually did read as a kid and if I enjoyed it and kind of compare and contrast with the movie.
1: Absolutely. Actually, that makes a lot of sense. I, as I was going back through and looking at the illustrations, that was another thing that I, it was just all sort of coming back to me. And actually something really cool happened. I, as I was reading, I started to picture it, you know, as you do. And I realized that I was picturing what I had sort of pictured as a child. So it was was almost like remembering my images of this story that that were not the illustrations that, you know, just came from my head. And so that was kind of a cool experience to... to go back there but yeah like for example you know Dorothy's slippers are silver they're not ruby slippers
0: Um, big diversion from the movie that we all know and love uh, yeah the popular
1: slippers I don't know I think that it's definitely different from the movie I definitely watched the movie over and over again as a child also Um, but I think Possibly because I w- I read this whole series, I'm more comfortable in that that world and sort of you know divorcing it from the movie um, in my mind.
0: Yeah, I I think it's just an interesting question of like what you're most familiar with and like when, what you're coming to new as a grown up. I had an interesting conversation with somebody when I was recording for the podcast recently, and by the time this episode drops, listeners will probably have already heard this conversation. But the guest said something really interesting. They said that coming back to the book that we spoke about. And not only like reading the book itself and engaging with the book itself, but also engaging with the memory of themselves that they had the first time they read the book, it was like having a conversation with your younger self. And I'd never heard it put that way, but I think that sums it up so perfectly, especially for a book that you had really strong feelings about as a kid. This guest actually didn't like the book that we talked about as a kid, and didn't like it again when we read it as an as adults Um, oh interesting but I wonder if it's probably the same experience if you have a passionate feeling about a book in the other direction like if you love a book and you continue to love a book when you're an adult having that conversation with your younger self about this book that meant so much to you and why you loved it like I think that's really neat thing to think about while we're doing this whole rereading thing
1: that's actually a really good point I mean obviously this time around I have this adult brain looking at it and I
0: you know I definitely
1: felt just as uh, welcomed into this world as I had as a child. And at the time that I was reading these as a child, I was an only child for 11 years before my brother was born. And so I loved these sort of fantastical landscapes and these these creatures you know made of stone and these talking animals and these and I would often you know play alone and use my imagination and all of that and so that sort of playfulness and that complete other universe uh, definitely came back to me and I felt so I guess nostalgic is the, the word for that um, but at the same time I think this time around and I was reading it with a pen in my hand which is <laughs> how I read most of my books and so I was realizing you know, sort of lessons or messages that were kind of planted in there. And and that was almost alarming to me because as a child, it was just a great story. Yeah, um,
0: That's yeah. always my struggle with the podcast. And I'm always going back and forth because as listeners and anybody who's seen my Instagram stories knows, I sort of attack these books with a highlighter and a pen. And yeah. I do think that it serves the show well because I'm thinking about things in a really active way. And I, I think for the most part the show would suffer if I didn't do that. But there have been a few books where I've been like, you know what, I'm just going to read this. Like, I think Little Women was one of them, where I was like, Mm. first of all, this is such a big book that I don't think it would be efficient, quite frankly, for me to read through this with a pen and a highlighter. Um, And I'm trying to think, there was another one, I think, more recently that I read, sort of just trying not to annotate it. But I totally understand what you're saying. It's like, I'm, I'm constantly trying to figure out, am I going to be able to have a more authentic conversation if I just read the book and try to absorb it somewhat as I would have as a kid, or am I going to kind of drop the ball in the conversation if I'm not more actively interacting with the content? So that in itself obviously changes the way that we read these books. Add that to the adult brain that you mentioned, and it can be a totally different experience.
1: Absolutely. I also think that it's interesting because as children, well, at least with my favorite books, I read them over and over again. Yeah. And, it, it, you know, I carried them around with me and I had them read to me and then I read them and then I read them again, I mean, especially with, you know, series, um, because... It's like one long book that just keeps going, and it's interesting because you're absorbing that over and over again. And I'm sure that as children, that that sort of evolves, to, you know, to some degree as you're rereading and looking at it. But you know, not the way it does when you're looking at it with this analytical, you know, eye as an adult and it's a good question like does that does it take away from the experience I mean can you can you sort of glean the same things from these books if you were to just sort of sink in and then reflect back on what your you know what your impressions were? I don't know
0: yeah I've gotten DMs and messages from a few people who have been like why are you always looking for a lesson in these books like why does there have to be a moral and that has always given me pause to think about it because Yes, I do think that some children's books should exist just for fun, and there is pop culture, particularly intended for kids, that, like, isn't necessarily meant to be moralistic. But I do think that, by nature, anything geared towards kids is carrying some sort of a message. And so, while I I don't think every book that we talk about we need to find this, like, deep-rooted moral guidance, like... I think it's it's always worth seeing, like if there's even just like a tiny little extra layer beneath the surface. So um, again, listeners, generally speaking, this is something that I'm always trying to figure out. And it's nice when my <laughs> guests sort of have a similar experience because for a lot of people and you read with a pen and mark your books up a lot but um, for some people like that's a really new experience when they're coming onto the podcast that's not something that they've done since like college English so always kind of interesting to reflect on like really the mechanics of reading these books in a different way.
1: Absolutely. I also think that just the idea of going back and visiting books from our childhood you know there's obviously a lot of people sort of get excited by that idea or it's that nostalgic feeling of dipping back in but again the adult brain that says okay we've evolved a lot as just a a society and like maybe there might be something that's quite dated or maybe there you know um that question comes up i rereading this was sort of just so pleasantly surprised to discover that my adult observation of this book that really was written at the turn of the last century. Yeah, 1907
0: right? is the pub date on this yes. book which might be I don't think it's the oldest book that we've read for the podcast, but it's almost. It's it's nearing the oldest book we read for the podcast.
1: Yeah, I I honestly am really I was really taken with the purity of it and the I felt that it wasn't so dated as I as I thought it might be upon revisiting it. I mean, I, th- I thought there were a lot of sort of good lessons that hadn't popped out to me as a child, which are relevant today. That was, a, that was a fun discovery.
0: I didn't find it to be especially dated either. And I think when you step back and you think about the fact that, like, as you said, this is a book that was written at the turn of the last century. But not only that, it's a book written by a man about a little girl. That yeah. tends to be where we find ourselves in problematic situations on the podcast often when we're looking back at books from even two or three decades ago that were written by a man about a young girl that is when things get sticky and there's language and there's just like content that feels really uncomfortable when we look at it through our 2019 perspective and yes I really didn't see much of that in this book. And I think part of it is it is such a fantastical world that there's really no like sure. grounding in the day-to-day issues that we could look at and be like, well, based on our real life experience, like that's not actually fair. We're not really like dealing with that kind of content in this book. But also I think it's like such a straightforward narrative in some ways, like there's not so much room for interpretation where we can like wonder what L. Frank Baum's intentions or thoughts were. But I was pleasantly surprised by the same thing. Like I was kind of waiting for a few slip-ups or like a few icky moments and I, I can't think of any. I mean I had jotted down some notes about some potential like and probably accidental trans positive messages in this book that I think probably the author was unaware of when he wrote it, but I found that again when I was researching. And so that's actually like a great thing. And so the fact that the accidental thing in this book was actually a net positive and not like (laughs) wildly offensive is really cool. I agree with you. I mean,
1: absolutely. I also thought that I found a theme of appearances and judging others by appearance, right? Um, That sort of emerged that I hadn't even thought about. I think the thing that sticks with me or stuck with me as a child the most was This, it's almost a horrific scene, but this the scene where the princess Languadir has her cabinet full of how many is it? It's like 30 heads, like, and she can just wear a different face for every day, and she's just that's her life, she's all about it. And so, to see that in contrast to you know, we have Dorothy landing in yet again a strange land right and she doesn't know where she is and she's encountering different um, life forms and again wild trees and all of the things one moment that struck me in particular was when just sort of how it plays out when she meets the wheelers you know and and she she comes to this island and there's this there's this message beware the wheelers and she sees them and she's terrified and she's never encountered a Wheeler before. And this moment emerges later where it's revealed that they're, they're actually very friendly people. And, you know, it, it was a sort of lesson of, like, not judging someone at first appearance. And and instantly she's just filled with empathy and we'll keep your secrets safe and yeah
0: I I found that really
1: beautiful as an adult to read
0: I agree and I was genuinely afraid of the wheelers the way they were described in the book yeah. they were really yeah. scary they were these like I don't even quite know how to, how to describe them except for the fact that they have wheels in place of where like an animal's paws would be, and they move sort of on four quote-unquote legs, but they're wheeling around, and they seem to have these really scary faces, and they can move very quickly because, again, wheels. And I was very afraid of them, and I've now read about a lot of different kinds of scary creatures in middle grade and YA, and this was like a very scary depiction. And I agree with you when we find out that the wheelers only behave in this scary way because they're like trying to protect themselves, and they want other creatures to think that they're scary and dangerous. I think that's a metaphor for the way that a lot of people behave.
1: Yes, absolutely, and and also it's. I mean, it really is. A, it's a lesson in empathy, a lesson in okay. Why is this person behaving this way? And does it actually have anything to do with me? The the wheelers ended up meaning no harm. The beware the wheelers message comes from the wheelers trying to build up this reputation of fear around themselves. And and truthfully, you're right, they're described in such a gruesome way. The wheels, I I had forgotten this, but uh, rereading it, I was just so struck by the fact that the wheels are described as made out of the same thing that human fingernails are made out of oh yeah like, that
0: was gross the, the,
1: it's like really gruesome i think um you know and they're they're described as, as being very loud and shouting and sort of you know these belligerent volatile creatures and turns out that it's all self-defense
0: Very interesting. I think the other theme that we see a lot in terms of this, like, appearances question is there's a lot about underestimation in this book. Like, a lot. And Dorothy is underestimated a few times. Belina, in particular, is underestimated a lot. And she ends up kind of being the star of this book because people look at Belina, who, listeners, if you haven't read Ozma or if this is all seeming very strange to you, Belina is a chicken that Dorothy meets when she first comes up on shore in this new fairy land, which is called the Land of Ev, and Dorothy and Belina actually are like swept together off of a boat in the middle of the ocean because there's been a storm, and they both are clinging to a chicken coop, and then they come up on shore. We're talking about the Land of Oz here, so this all should sound like very appropriate for for, uh, L. Frank Baum, the author of the Oz book that everybody knows. This should not seem strange to you, if you're familiar with Oz at all. I love
1: that we begin in a storm, too. It's just a different kind of storm, but here we are again yeah you know? we're back on a
0: storm uh, these gales you know Dorothy Gale and her family yeah. just like can't catch a break the whole reason that they're going off on this ship in the first place is because Uncle Henry is exhausted from rebuilding the house after the last weather incident which was of course the cyclone that brought <laughs> Dorothy to Oz the first time and he's so tired that his doctor has recommended that he goes away and I did think it was kind of funny that like they're going to Australia from Kansas. Right. Like, I'm not quite sure how that works out. Whatever. I kind of love it because I assume that this book is meant to be set at some point in the 19th century and like love that they're going to Australia from the Midwest. Like you gales, super worldly. <laughs> so Dorothy is like kind of trying to make sure her uncle is okay and so she goes out on the deck of the ship which was not advised and I loved, you know, you mentioned a little bit about Dorothy's bravery and I did love that and the way we see it in this first scene Um, the author writes yet Dorothy felt a sort of joyous excitement in defying the storm and while she held fast to the railing she peered around through the gloom and thought she saw the dim form of a man clinging to the mast not far away from her she didn't lose her presence of mind even for a second and like what a badass like she's literally on top of a deck on a ship in the middle of a storm, she has no idea where she is and she's not losing her presence of mind even for a second. I also thought she had this like hilariously chill reaction to being blown off the ship. The author says Dorothy gave a sigh of regret at parting with Uncle Henry and began to wonder what was going to happen to her next. Like, that was how she felt. <laughs> well,
1: I, I love it, too, love that it. she finds herself on that chicken coop, right? And yeah. she, when she discovers that it's a raft, I wrote down this as one of my favorite quotes from it. She says, why, I've got a ship of my own. You know, and she's just totally chill. She's like, well, like, um, I I'll fall asleep and
0: find out what happens next. <laughs> yeah, she's just, like, ready for the next adventure.
1: Yeah, and honestly, the whole reason that she was out on that deck in the first place is because she couldn't find Uncle. – didn't she think Uncle Henry had, like, wandered out there and – and, and was not following the captain's orders and so therefore she was going to go rescue her uncle and I just I love that
0: yeah she was trying to take matters into her own hands and she thought that maybe he was looking for her like it kind of seemed like that right. kind of a situation where she was worried that he was worried about her and so right she wanted to make sure that he wasn't worried about her and in turn she was the one who got <laughs> blown off the ship so this is how she meets Belina she's clinging to a chicken coop and this Yellow chicken pops up, and they are now partners in crime and figuring out what to do next. But the chicken introduces herself as Bill, which made me laugh. My dad's name is Bill. Um, <laughs> and so that was just sort of like a personal thing like, ah, oh, like dad and this chicken have the same name. Um, weird how sometimes my 12 year old brain comes back uh, when I'm reading these books. <laughs> so then we have this interesting conversation about why Bill is a girl chicken. And why her name is Bill. And I thought this was interesting. Again, like, we can't help but project some of our more modern conversations onto these books. And I, you know, I was like, hmm, this is a really interesting, like, transpositive conversation that they're having because Bill is basically explaining the fact that when she was born on the farm, nobody could tell if she was a hen or a rooster, if she was going to grow up to be a hen or a rooster. And there was a boy on the farm who sort of adopted her as his own because she was the only yellow chicken in the group. And yes. he didn't know if, if she was a boy or girl, so he called her Bill. And she's just kind of been like, okay, that's my name. Like, I don't really care what my name is. I know who I am. Um, And Dorothy interestingly pushes back and she's like, you can't have a boy name if you're a girl. Like, we're gonna add an Ina to the end and that makes you a girl. So that's how Bill becomes Belina. And I just thought that was really interesting because the author made such a point to share the story. And again, I'm not sitting here saying that L. Frank Baum was trying to be the, the forerunner of all of these conversations about gender and gender identity in 1907. But it definitely was like, hmm, this is pretty cool. And like, I don't know exactly what I think it it would be trying to say if it had been intentional, but definitely like an interesting conversation to be reading in 2019.
1: Absolutely. I also love that you said that it was this sort of like, I know who I am moment for Bill, Belina, because later in the book, and is it when she introduces herself to the gnome king? Well, she's asked her name Mm -hmm. and she says, well, you know, by all accounts, my name is Bill, but Dorothy calls me Belina.
0: This kid um, right. is making me go by Belina, whatever. <laughs> but it's just sort of like, you know, uh,
1: this is who I am. I, you know, call me what you want to call me. but. Uh... And also, I love that she ends up being the one that sort of, you know, she gets a hold of this secret later on. I mean, talk about a badass. And she, she keeps this to herself. And she proudly goes in there. And pretty much saves the day. I mean, this is, Belina is our hero here, I think.
0: It's interesting because I found, even though the book is called Ozma of Oz, there's not that much about Ozma in this book, at least by my estimation. I think Dorothy and Baleen are actually more like the central characters and the heroes. I did read in one of the articles that I found before we jumped on today that Ozma, in some ways is sort of like the most important character in the Oz series as a whole. I don't know what you would say about that. Again, I'm coming to this particular book. Pretty fresh to this whole world beyond The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. But it does seem that maybe this is the first book where Ozma is introduced and then she becomes more of a presence in the later books in the series. Is that right?
1: Yeah, yes. And this is the third book, although I believe it was actually written before the first or second book. I mean, technically in the series, it's the third book, but yes, it's our, to my knowledge, it's our introduction to Ozma or my first memory of Ozma. Yeah. And, you know, and she has this great entrance you know defying the poisonous deserts between Oz and Ev on this magical carpet which it turns out was made by created by Glenda uh or gifted rather by Glenda uh and I love that you know Glenda comes back in the end the thing that I think strikes me too about Ozma that i love so much is that she's described as this almost like elven petite just little and and you know the thing is too is that she's got such a presence because when when okay so when they're trying to enter the realm of the gnome king right and she at first says you know, I order you to come out or whatever it is. And then it was sort of like, I ask you to come out. And someone said, Oh, no, you I think it was Scarecrow. It says, y- You have to make an entreaty. You have to plead. And she says, Would you have a ruler plead? Yeah. I,
0: don't do like, that. I got it. I'm from Kansas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that. She's like, I know how to ask yeah. for things politely. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. But yeah, so it, it's our introduction. To, and, and so I think that's possibly where the title comes from. But you're right. Dorothy and Belina are really our heroes here in this story.
0: The really interesting thing about Ozma is actually her backstory. And before we get too far from the conversation about Belina and the interesting gender politics of, of her name, um, I did yes. find an interesting article from... A site called Birth Movies and Death called Ozma, L. Frank Baum's Trans Positive Oz Heroine. And it talks about how Ozma's origin story is really one of the first progressive characters we see who's coming from like this interesting gender background. So the way that I read the story is that Ozma was born as a baby girl and then she was sort of enchanted into being a boy and then she switched yes. back to being a girl and that's when she like kind of steps into her power Um, and the article talks about how like sure an enchantress can move things along a lot faster than hormones but in the end like you're getting to the same result which is somebody like sort of realizing their true identity and again I don't know that the author actually thought that this is what he was talking about or was aware of even the language around being transgender or gender identity. The quote that I pulled was, it's unlikely that L. Frank Baum was writing a book about transgendered people, but Osma works pretty well as an LGBT metaphor. Osma lived in a boy's body but had been a girl all along. It's the story of a young boy turned into a beautiful princess. And so I think that's really worth pointing out too because, again, we're talking about 1907 here, listeners. This uh-huh. is a long time
1: ago. Yeah. I And this story is shared within... In this book, within all of a, a paragraph, yeah, maybe? it's um, And it's just sort of, it's interesting. It's sort of said, not off the cuff, but it's uh, very simply stated. I was born and then I was... I forget how they put it, but yes, you're absolutely right. And that, that was, I have to think that there's some something conscious about that combined with, in the same book, with Belina's story. It is very, it's just very interesting.
0: Definitely worth mentioning. I thought it was interesting, again, as you said, like between that and Belina, I feel like I need to learn a little bit more about the author and where he comes from and what his politics were like and what his relationships were like. Um, I feel like he's probably a really interesting guy just to have come up with all of this anyway and to have some of these little hints throughout the book. As you said I think Asma's backstory was maybe a paragraph like it was sort of just like thrown in there but for me it packed such a punch so I wanted to make sure we talked about it. Let's talk more about Princess Languidier because you mentioned her briefly. (laughs) I'm obsessed with her. I know she's horrible and vain and evil but she's one of the most fascinating characters that I've read in a long time. So the deal with Princess Languidier is that Dorothy and Belina have come to this land of Ev, as we've mentioned, and they're trying to figure out who's in charge. They find out from TikTok who, fun fact, is one of the first mentions of robots in English literature. Who knew? again. L. Frank Baum, one of the pioneers in all of these different kinds of ways. He shares with them the fact that the king of Ev is dead. He has actually thrown himself into the ocean and drowned because he sold his wife and children into slavery under the gnome king, who we've also talked briefly about so far. And he had kind of like traded them for eternal life. And then he realized that like he was too miserable and felt too horrible about what had happened. And so he commit suicide anyway. And Princess Languidere is a family member who's stepped in. She's this, like, young kind of teen-sounding girl. I don't think she could be older than 20 the way she's described. And she is a very unwilling monarch. Like, she really doesn't want anything to do with being in charge, but she really enjoys the trappings of being royal. And see, as you mentioned, she has these 30 (laughs) different heads that she puts on. There's one for every day of the month if she wants. And the only way that people know who she is is she, I forget what the accessory was, but is it her, like, does she have a bracelet? I forget.
1: Yeah. It's um, a ruby key. Oh, right. And I I think it's what unlocks the cabinet, but it's basically, it's around her wrist. And so, you know, she dresses also to, she always dresses the same way. That's right. She always dresses the same way because yes, because it, it flatters all of her, you know, various heads. <laughs> and and it's said that the the only way that anyone knew that they were in the presence of a princess is because of this key around her wrist. One of the facts about the different heads, too, that I find so interesting is she mentions picking out a like number 17 or something like this and she says she not only likes the way it looks but she's aware of the temper that comes with it and so it, it's interesting because she's almost like picking out these moods I don't know as a child it absolutely fascinated me
0: and maybe that's a part of me that like wanted to dabble in acting later or something but yeah just really really wild yeah the mythology around her just blew my mind it felt Almost like at a JK Rowling level of world building for me like this whole situation with princess language felt like something out of Harry Potter And I think generally this is a really great fantasy world But this for some reason this particular thread is what really like got my ears perked up And I just I loved her I loved the descriptions of her Rooms in the palace and I loved the descriptions of her sort of walking through this case with all the different heads And as you mentioned the fact that she was aware that if she put on head number 17 She was gonna have a bad temper. like she was kind of ready and raring to go to see what the day would bring and it did get me thinking like sometimes even in my own life obviously to a much less extreme extent it's like there are certain outfits that I put on if I know that I like want to feel really fierce there are certain outfits that I put on if I know that I'm gonna have sort of a chill day and I don't need to be sassy and the days that I do absolutely nothing with my hair makeup or clothes I'm really gonna have no attitude and so we talked a little bit about kind of the appearance policy of this book and how much stock is placed in appearance and I think this conversation about the fact that Princess Languidere is like making decisions about what her mood's going to be like based on how she looks is again something that you can relate to the real world
1: oh I found it incredibly relatable (laughs) I know that I've had somebody say you know I've had you know a co-worker friend say oh my gosh you look fantastic today and I'm like yeah it's because I feel too terrible and it's you know it's like the, the full face of makeup and the higher the heels or whatever and that's you know what does it for me it's like for everyone they have their different way to make themselves feel you know feel a certain way but absolutely uh, was relatable to me.
0: I would like to see her in a movie I read that there was like a Canadian TV show, a 1987 Canadian animated feature film called Dorothy Meets Ozma of Oz, but I want to see a live action depiction of Princess Languadier. I want to see what her rooms look like. I want to see that cabinet of heads. I want to see it all.
1: I know. Can we have someone like turn this entire series into it? Because it's so, it really is so fantastic. Oh, on the on the thought of, we were talking about sort of appearance. And um, one of my favorite things that happens when the army comes up, when Ozma's army comes up, is that they talk about all of these sort of high-ranking officials in the army. And then they talk about the private and how he's this like unassuming man. And um, he ends up being one of the bravest. And then at the end, the way that he is promoted to rule all of the armies and everything. I just found so, I, I love that. I love that. It's the same thing like the cowardly lion. You know, he says, oh, I'm so cowardly. I'm so cowardly. And t- two or three times in this book, he's the first one to step forward and say, oh, I'll, I'll go. I'm so, I'm so terrified. I'm so scared, but I'll be the one to do it. And I just sort of love that because it plays back into that theme of sort of, you know, at first sight, you may not think this unassuming person has all of this strength and power in
0: them. Incidentally, I loved the illustrations of the Cowardly Lion in the book and yes. his little ponytail. Yes. I love him. I think think I decided because of reading this book that my dog Irv is going to be the cowardly lion for (laughs) Halloween because he looks kind of like a lion and he's afraid of everything he's this like big floppy dog that is afraid of like a leaf blowing and I think he would be a perfect cowardly lion so thanks to of Oz for that inspiration clearly I'm like a month and a half early but Irv and I already have his Halloween costume locked down. No you
1: you have to plan you have to
0: yeah last time I went to pet store and they only had like one costume left over and i'm not doing that again so we're going to plan ahead this year um and he's going to be the cowardly lion but the next kind of interesting thing that happens with princess languidere is that she tries to get Dorothy's head she's like hey you're cute like i'd like to have your head for my own and Dorothy, as you should stands up for herself and she's like you can't you can't have my head that's not how this works and so princess (laughs) languidere Decides to lock her up with Belina in a tower, and luckily, you know, we've been talking about Ozma coming with this grand parade and making this grand entrance, and they just sort of happen to pass through the land of Ed as all of this is happening, and they they can then rescue Dorothy and Belina, um, and it's also this really sweet reunion with Scarecrow and the Tin Woodman, who I have to stop myself from calling him just the Tin Man because, of course, that's how I know him in the movie, but in the books, we call him the Tin Woodman, and um, and his name is Nick Chopper. Right. That's his given name. (laughs) If we're going to be fully respectful of him, he's Nick Chopper. Um, That's so true. So yeah, Dorothy gets to have this reunion with them. That made my heart all warm and fuzzy just like thinking about the fact that they'd had all these adventures together and she probably wasn't sure if and when she'd ever see them again. And now not only does she get to reunite with them, but also they're going to save her from this tower. And Ozma kind of walks up and again she has all this presence about like wanting to make sure that Dorothy is released. One thing that I was wondering and I don't know if I read it anywhere in this book at all do we know how old Dorothy and or Ozma are does it matter I don't think it matters but I was curious
1: well okay so this is the thing part of the reason I think it doesn't matter is because we're talking about a time so long ago now where maybe the lifespan wasn't the same or I I think it's sort of immaterial I picture Dorothy as actually quite young as like maybe nine or ten honestly. And I know, I know that's not the way it rolls out when Judy Garland's, you know. <laughs> that's why it's so confusing. <laughs> I know, I know. And I think Ozma as well, no older than 16 is how I'm picturing Ozma. But again, we're also talking about time that is kind of not measured in the same way that it is, you know, in this world. So...
0: I also think the idea is that this, you know, this is a book obviously targeted toward young kids. And yeah. it's sort of like no matter what age you are as a kid reading this book, you sort of project yourself into the characters anyway. So I would imagine that maybe the author wanted to write the book such that a six-year-old girl reading this book or having this book read to her could yes. picture Darthea as a six-year-old and a 10-year-old girl could think the same and a 12-year-old and so on. I almost picture her like Wendy in the animated Peter Pan, like oh around gosh, that yes. age. Don't you think? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. She's oh, I sort of love that like an paramount. ambiguous... Because I don't think Wendy... I don't know that we ever find out exactly how old Wendy is. Like, she's being moved out of the nursery, whatever that means. But looking at her, you could think that she's 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. So that's sort of how I was picturing her. I tend to, like, look for those details. So I was hungry to find out how old she actually was. And I had trouble getting rid of the image of Judy Garland. So I kept yes. having to remind myself, like, she's not... 15 16 17 like she's a child. So then I started thinking about Wendy from Peter Pan and that helped a little.
1: Absolutely. Well, she's actually sort of the illustrations. Can we talk about the illustrations They're beautiful. In this book they are so gorgeous and this I think, you know, the editions that you can get are the only ones. You and I have the same one and honestly, this is what my father's books that were falling apart looked like, the same colors and everything. And yes, yeah, she's depicted so differently. From the Dorothy we know but first of all her hair looks like Belina's feathers she's yeah. like blonde she's blonde, really, you know, and, you know, and the silver shoes and the, she's not quite as glamorous and she, she's a little bit more believable, I think, as our friendly Kansas farm girl.
0: (laughs) Yeah. They lean into that like farm girl thing a little bit more with these illustrations, which, you know, that was the original intention. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, oh, one thing that I was going to say about that I
0: also loved about Princess Langwood Castle
1: or whatever, whatever it is that she lives in. Is when the entrance is in the left wing. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. (laughs) And it's
0: not that you go to the left, it's that it's the the only one left. Yeah, and she's like kind of, she seems to be like trying to hide out a little bit. Like she's just trying to confuse everybody about where to find her. She doesn't want people to bother her with their problems.
1: (laughs) I love that so much. I do picture Languadera as older though. I like, you know, maybe like. 18 or
0: something. Yeah, like closer to 20 because I think that makes her a little bit more amusing as this like unwilling ruler because you have these two younger girls who are taking on all this responsibility and they're coming upon this girl who's probably a few years older than they are who wants absolutely nothing to do with really, like, anything that doesn't have to do with herself.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, and then when they're all sitting around this round table, as it is illustrated, and they're having the conversation about having to go visit the Gnome King, right? And there's this discussion of the fire right under the under the earth is going to be fire and Scarecrow's like oh gosh well that's going to be the end of me you know been there before had that conversation (laughs) Nick Chopper uh if you will uh is is like oh I could melt in that and but I guess I'll go you know and everyone's all rallying and Linguadier's like oh I hate the heat I'm going to retire
0: now (laughs) it's like the humidity really screws with my hair like I can't I don't like being warm (laughs) Funny to me. Yeah. So they eventually bargain with her. Dorothy gets to leave, but they just they tell her, like, we're gonna go try to track down the rest of your royal family so that you don't have to do this anymore. Like we'll go try to find the rightful heir to the throne so that you can go and do whatever you want to do with your pretty self and so they trek to the gnome king um as you mentioned it's underground and they don't really know what to expect there are of course some adventures on the way um the cowardly lion and the hungry tiger who i also love really get to step up by like letting all of the other people and creatures board their backs and they're kind of like scurrying under this hammer that keeps falling over the entrance to get into this underground kingdom and i loved that image of like each person or each creature boarding one of the big cats and like being carried under the hammer by them. That was a really great image to him and one that I would like to see on screen someday.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Also, all of the, let's talk about the of really scary gnome creatures that sort of live in the mountainsides it's like basically the mountainsides look like they're moving because they are the color of the mountainside and they don't really have feet and it's like are they made of stone or are they made of this sort of you know just essence but the way they're sort of painted they're like it's almost like smoke and they're terrifying they like they laugh as a chorus and you know they taunt them as they're trying to go under this massive chopping robot man in the mountainside it's a great image i'd love to see it cinematically portrayed
0: yeah it was really scary and i loved the way that the lion and the tiger stepped up i want to talk about the tiger for a second because please his whole premise was really interesting to me so i pulled out one of his quotes where he's kind of explaining why he is the hungry tiger he says yes. for my part i'm a savage beast and have an appetite for all sorts of poor little living creatures from a chipmunk to fat babies fat babies don't they sound delicious but I've never eaten any because my conscience tells me it's wrong if I had no conscience I would probably eat the babies and then get hungry again which would mean that I had sacrificed the poor babies for nothing no hungry I was born and hungry I shall die but I'll have not any cruel deeds on my conscience to be sorry for I feel like this is such an interesting like philosophical study and moral study about what's right and wrong and like what we want to take on for ourselves versus what we take on for the greater good I felt like my college ethics professor would just had like a field day with the hungry tiger
1: (laughs) oh absolutely I there's also this moment when when he meets Belina and and he's so tempted and and he says but of course I I I won't eat you because you're or I won't but of course I won't eat you And, and Dorothy says well of course you can't she's my friend and you can't eat my friends it's sort of Uh, It's interesting that he acknowledges, okay, this is what I want to do, but because out of respect for you or because we are friends or because this is just simply wrong, I'm not going to do that thing that I am tempted to do, Uh, which is essentially murder. I mean, this is what we're talking about in this case, but, you know, I mean, you could use it to illustrate so many different things.
0: Well, just, like, the idea that, like— regardless of whether he eats or not, he understands that the end is going to be the same. Like he's always going to be hungry. No matter what happens, he will be hungry. And so he doesn't want to hurt any living creature in the process. I thought that was just so interesting. And I wonder how I would have thought about that as a kid reading this book. Like, I wonder how much of that I would have understood as this, like, big ethical question.
1: Yeah, I, I think it is interesting to use the idea of hunger. I don't think that so much would have, like, resonated with me as a thing to, you know, because normally, I guess, what what do we teach children, something that's, that's like tempting is, I mean, I guess like what stealing the cookies or whatever, but like theft or like, you know, hurting somebody or like being selfish or these sorts of things. This is a really interesting way to illustrate temptation and sort of listening to your conscience. And I also think it's of note that it, is part of his identity it's part of his name Mm. you know that he will always be Like he doesn't even it's not just that he says it he he just is the hungry tiger or similar to the you know cowardly lion who's not so cowardly you know
0: yeah they're fighting their very natures to be Mm -hmm. like the best versions of themselves which is interesting so these big cats really play a role in getting them to the, the gnome kingdom and we've touched briefly about what happens when they get there but basically what they learn is that the gnome king has taken the queen of Eve and all of her children and has actually turned them into ornaments so he bought them as slaves which felt icky all the language around like they're yes. not my servants they're my slaves he has actually turned them into what he calls a brick brack or decor for his rooms mm-hmm. and he's so power hungry and greedy there's this scene where he like calls out Thousands and thousands and thousands of soldiers that just fill this whole cavern. Um, and you get this sense that he's so proud of the fact that, like, nobody would ever challenge his army. Like, that's sort of what really gives him pride and confidence in what he's done. Um, and oh, he's, it's so gross. It's so gross. Like, he, I think he literally says, like, no one has or ever will challenge me. Um, and he just likes to, like, look at his power. He has these physical manifestations of his money, his power, um, his aggression. So he has his soldiers and he has his stuff. And most of his stuff, I have to believe, was actually once like a living thing that he's now enchanted to become a thing. And he basically tells the traveling crew from Ozma's army, and then we have, of course, Dorothy and we have Belina, that he will let the Ev family members go if they can go and identify which of the ornaments were originally the Ev family. And pretty much everybody fails. They all try and they are then turned into ornaments which was the deal that the Gnome King made with them if they went through and they were wrong and they didn't guess any of the ornaments correctly they would then be turned into ornaments themselves. Dorothy is actually the only one who like legitimately has a correct guess because she goes through and she has no prior information and she touches one of them and realizes that it's a correct guess. But you mentioned this before, Belina really comes in to save the day because she has fallen asleep under the king's throne and she wakes up and overhears him having this whole conversation about how the purple ornaments are the Ev family. So Belina knows that if she goes in and touches all the purple ornaments, she will free them. She also hears that it's his magic belt that kind of holds all of his power. And so um, yes. after Belina goes through and like identifies all of the correct ornaments... Um, she's then able to come back and like support the group and making sure that they get a hold of the magic belt so that they can take away his strength and so it's really Belina and the fact that she falls asleep and is left behind by the group for a few seconds that then empowers her to come through and save I think it was like 36 different lives
1: yes a huge crew because it's it's the entire royal family and then it wasn't just our you know Oz crew that we know every single one of the army went in as well to make guesses and got turned into an ornament.
0: The author shares a lot of details about like each of the individuals that goes in and what they try and fail to guess. And I just found it was 37 people because the quote is, the 37 people who are now alive in the rooms of the palace knew very well that they owed their freedom to the cleverness of the yellow hen, and they were mm. earnest in thanking her for saving them from the magic of the gnome king. And then it's Belina's eggs that um, come in and help save the day as well because the scarecrow has been pocketing Belina's eggs, and <coughs> coincidentally the eggs are <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Dangerous, or you know, these the gnomes are like allergic to them, or they can't tolerate being around eggs or having eggs on them, and so scarecrow throws the eggs at the gnome king and the king is blinded and he can't like function and so that's when they come in and steal his magic belt. So we have Belina saving the day in multiple ways. And the whole thing about her eggs is interesting because like from the beginning she doesn't really have any intention of like doing anything with her eggs but she's very serious about laying one every day. And Dorothy tries to understand. Yeah, she has a routine. Like She doesn't actually want to hatch them, which I thought was kind of interesting like as a woman. like "Hmm, What are we trying to say here? Like I don't want to hatch the eggs. I just want to lay them because that's my Right. Um but yeah, I, I thought know. that was kinda cool. Like I was trying to figure out like where are we going with this because the author is very deliberate about all of those scenes where Belina was like, No, I'm laying an egg and also deliberate about like and the scarecrow is picking it up and pocketing it, and I knew that was gonna come back somehow. So Belina saves the day in multiple ways um, and allows them to take back the magic belt, which then gives them the opportunity to get away and they go back to Oz and there's a parade and it's amazing and Dorothy becomes a princess and it's like everything that my Wizard of Oz moving loving heart ever could have wanted in that scene.
1: Absolutely. There's a scene where they're coming up to the Gnome King's lair or mountain and Belina says, she stops the entire cavalcade as as a tin woodman puts it, uh, and goes off into the bushes and everyone's like, what is going on? Right. And Dorothy's it's like she's got to lay her egg, and, and he's like, "Well, this is hardly the moment. Like, come on!" And then she's like, "No, no, she just does it every morning, and this right. is the time that she does it." And so, she's, you know, she's got to lay her egg. <laughs> that's so that's funny. So much that, like, yeah. I also the fact that the eggs are quote-unquote poison, I thought this was another um, kind of example of the almost just like prejudice against the unknown. So the whole thing is that they come from the above ground and so therefore they, they are poison. But it really just sort of serves to disarm or terrify the people underground because there's no mention of it's not like the the wicked witch you know, melting into a puddle of anything. It's just like, oh, he's got egg in his eye and suddenly he can't move because he's terrified sort of thing. That to me, I don't know quite what the message is there, but it struck me that they were not really as you know real weapons mm-hmm. as the as they were described before.
0: Do you there's, know what I'm saying? Yeah, there's nothing, like, yeah. actually inherently poisonous about the eggs, except that the gnome king, like, doesn't know what they are, and so he panics when he is encountered with them.
1: I, that seemed to be yeah. the one disarming thing about the eggs.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's actually a really good point. I hadn't thought about that, but, like, yeah, I mean, what do you mean eggs are poisonous? Like, it, it's it's very convenient <laughs> yeah. that, like, just eggs happen to be poisonous to you and your people. Like, maybe you're just nervous about them because you don't know what they are.
1: Because you've never seen it before and you've never, yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. So in the end, Dorothy gets to go back to Australia. They strike up this really funny deal. Her and Ozma decide that because the magic belt has to stay in Oz in the fairy tale land because it's not actually going to be powerful in Kansas, they they strike up this deal where Ozma's going to keep the magic belt. And if Dorothy wants to come back sometime, Ozma will be able to transport her because she'll have the magic belt. And I liked that they sort of struck up this little negotiation. But Dorothy's like very happy to go home and see her uncle, although she's not desperate. And I read that somewhere in one of the articles that I found, but like different from the original Oz book, she actually feels like her family needs her more than she needs them in this book and Uh. she's not as like desperate to go back she like knows that her uncle needs her because he's not well and is probably worried about where she's gone but she's not like you know there's no place like home there's no place like home it's more a sense of responsibility that she has to do the right thing and go back
1: Right. Well, and it's, she ends up going to Australia, Yeah. Too. I mean, Uncle Henry's made it, right? But he's not getting on that boat back. It's sort of like, I know, wouldn't when did they get rent. back to Kansas? So I think that that's a good point, because the book begins that way also. How can I help Uncle Henry? And also the whole idea of her accompanying him to Australia is to care for him. You know, and um, so it is this sort of position of strength and caregiving that's it's cool to see Dorothy in after the whole original Oz
0: And <laughs> to wanting boggle. to go home so desperately, yeah. So, all in all, is coming back to Ozma of Oz for the SSR podcast it made you love it all the more, or has it not held up for you in some way?
1: Oh my gosh, I was so excited to reread it and to discover sort of those things that we were talking about from the adult brain point of view that I was sort of wary about and realized I was pleasantly surprised to discover it was much better than I could have imagined yeah I mean it made me want to give this book to any children that I know you know and and to go back and read the rest of the series so absolutely loved it loved it so much more
0: I'm so glad to hear that and I'm so glad that you introduced me to this book I feel like I need (laughs) to go learn more about the whole series and maybe read a few of them myself other than Ozma of Oz what have you been reading lately and loving what would you recommend to our listeners I know you read a ton and there's no rules it doesn't have to be a YA book it can be any genre whatever you've just been particularly enjoying and want to share
1: so this is interesting. I have had um, difficulty focusing lately. And so what I've been drawn to most are short stories, essays, things that come in, in small bites. And so a couple that have really stuck with me lately that are just fantastic. I just read the translated short stories of Edgar Curray, Fly Already is what it's called. And some of these short stories are a page long. And honestly, they're very human. They're every single one is about somebody who's facing a really big life change. But they're very funny and very dark, which is kind of—it's hard to hit that perfect balance. But these were perfect. And I also just finished published today, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's *Talking to Strangers*, which oh my goodness, it's very very readable. Reads very quickly, and I was just so struck by this idea that. You know, because I love talking to strangers living in New York. We do it all the time, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I make friends with strangers all the time right or conversely you might be completely offended by somebody who's cut in front of you or whatever it is both
0: extremes do happen here
1: (laughs) yeah and the way that he sort of explores the idea of how we understand strangers or think we do and sort of the you know sociological reasons that that we think that way is just so fascinating it was so good so those are two that I've really been loving lately (laughs)
0: Well, I will include links to both of those in the show notes for this episode, as well as a link to Ozma of Oz for those who, like me, are new to this and I'm sure are just so fascinated by the story, the way that we've talked about it, that they want to pick it up for the kids in their lives or even for themselves. Please Please do. I highly recommend it as well. I will also include a link to your bookstagram, Heather. I love following you on bookstagram, and I recommend listeners who are not, go check her out. She's a really fun follow, Um, and I'm really grateful that you took the time to talk with me about Ozma of Oz and that you introduced me to this book that meant so much to you when you were a kid it's always nice to like hear about a story that's meant so much to a guest and that they really hold close to their heart not just a book that they happen to have read as a kid so thank you for sharing that with me and I just really appreciate your time uh, thank you for having me
1: on, and I'm so glad that I met you in the bookstagram space, by the way, and that this sort of has come out of that, so
0: yeah, thank you, Allie. We have to have another wine date soon. Absolutely, we are overdue. Yes, <laughs> hopefully after this episode drops, we'll like have a date on the calendar, and then we can let everybody know that we are having our wine date. Thank you so much. <laughs> have a good rest of your night. All right, you too. Talk Bye. To you Bye.